Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. You'll be pleased to hear that this week we've got a pre-recorded episode for you guys, so you won't just have me, you will have me and Mark. And Mark is going to be back with us for the season finale of season nine on the 23rd of August, so he will be back with us. So just to let you guys know, we are going to have the season finale of season nine on the 23rd of August, and then we will be back with season 10 on the 13th of September. We're really excited for season 10, so there's lots in the pipeline, and yeah, I don't want to give too much away, but I'm excited for it. Before we crack on with the episode, I'm going to read out a few Patreon thank yous. So a massive thank you to everyone who's joined up recently to support us on Patreon. And I know Mark would be saying a huge thank you too if he was here recording with me. So thank you very much to Joanna Holdness, Constance Newbold, Delta Gomesall, Limerence, Hannah Packham, Carla Pothecary, Katie Mack, Caroline Hudson, Maggie Sparks Richardson, Vicky Anderson, Claire M and Madeline Clemens Looper. A huge thank you to all of you and to all of our existing Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join these guys and support us on Patreon as well, you can head to patreon.com forward slash seeing red podcast. So enough from me, let's hit play and um, you guys will hear our pre-recorded episode. It's a bit of a different one, a bit of a departure, but I feel like you guys are going to really enjoy it. This week we're going to do something a little bit different for us. Uh, We did the episode on Titanic and this is my turn to do something a a little bit uh, of a departure. So for the first time ever we're heading to Iraq, the infamous, notorious and dangerously unstable landlocked nation in the Middle East. And we're going to take a detailed and unsettling look at arguably one of the most evil and dangerous men the world has ever seen. I am so excited for this episode because it's not someone I know much about at all and I think this is going to be really fascinating and I'm not I'm not really sure when this is going to come out because we're going to pre-record it in case we ever need one like an episode aren't we so but when it does come out I feel like our listeners are just gonna be really interested in this as well. I really hope so yeah it is it is a bit of a departure, but I think it's um I think it will get people talking and it's an important case to cover because the barbaric nature of the crimes that this individual that we're going to go on to talk about committed are just on a a whole other level and I think it's important to remember this part of history really. A holiday in Iraq is on very few people's bucket lists and it's easy to see why. For more than three decades Iraq has experienced significant instability and ongoing violence for various reasons including high-level corruption, tyranny, religious fundamentalism, and of course its vast fossil energy reserves, all of which have caused a staggering amount of chaos, instability and destruction over many, many years now. And I say it's not on many people's bucket lists, but weirdly, it's definitely on mine because there's huge parts of Iraq that are absolutely beautiful and I would love to go and visit, but obviously it's still not really stable to do so at the moment. 
Oh, do you know what? I'm similar to you because um, not the same. I never really thought of Iraq as like a holiday destination, but there are certain places in the world which are just so, so beautiful. And yet you wouldn't, you wouldn't just go there for a holiday. I remember working with someone whose family were from Afghanistan and she was telling me about how prior to um, some of the things that happened there, there were loads and loads of like parks and lots of like floral bits and it was really, really beautiful. And they were trying, like people were trying to bring that back and, you just think like, oh, okay. So before the Taliban came in and ruined everything, it it probably would have been a destination, you know, a holiday destination. Yeah, I think people went there a long time ago, back in the 20s and 30s. There was a lot of archaeological digs out there. It's a really important place in history. So hopefully in decades to come, it will be back on the holiday destination list for people. Yeah. And who knows, maybe in our lifetimes, Beth, and we'll get to go. Maybe we could go together. Oh, I don't know if I want to go on holiday with you. I'm just going to put that out That's there. That's incredibly I like rude. I feel like you'd be really annoying on holiday. I bet Possibly. you'd clap when the plane lands. Yeah, I'm, I'm one of those, yeah. Um, I would be annoying. <laughs> I'm joking. I, no, I would go on holiday with would, you. I was just would. being mean. Yeah, and we. Um, I like to get my own way on holiday. That's the only thing. I like to just kind of do what I want to do. So you might not like that if we like different Oh, that's things. fine by me. That's fine by okay, me because sometimes cool. you want to do something different, don't you? You don't want to have to stick with somebody the whole way round. No, You might no. want to go off and do something. Cool. Okay, well, let's crack on. So Iraq gained worldwide notoriety thanks in no small part to Saddam Hussein, the notoriously brutal dictator who ruled over Iraq with an iron fist from 1979 until 2003. His tyrannical rule was characterised by a combination of political repression, military aggression, economic mismanagement and the implementation of a brutally oppressive regime that inflicted widespread fear, violence and suffering on the Iraqi and Kuwaiti people for more than 20 years. Under Saddam's reign, the Iraqis lived under the constant fear of genocide, mass executions, widespread use of torture and arbitrary arrests targeting perceived political opponents, dissidents and ethnic or religious minorities. Saddam also employed a secret police force to suppress dissent and maintain control through fear and intimidation, leaving a legacy of human rights abuses and a climate of terror throughout Iraq. Until he was stopped for good in 2003, he was without question the most dangerous and tyrannical ruler of our times. However, Saddam is not the primary focus of this week's episode. Instead, we'll be taking a long and unsettling look at someone far, far worse. A man so profoundly evil and sadistic that he was considered by the Iraqi people to be Satan himself. Saddam Hussein had five children in total. Two boys followed by three girls. The focus of this episode will be on the eldest of those children, Uday Hussein. Uday Hussein was born on June the 18th in 1964 in Tikrit, a large city in Iraq that's located 140 kilometres northwest of Baghdad. As the eldest of Saddam's two sons, Uday experienced a childhood of privilege, opulence, power and absolute impunity. Towering well over six foot, Uday was seen as an odd and flamboyant character, with a penchant for fast cars, cocaine, drunken parties, expensive suits and flowing robes, as well as murder, rape and torture. Exact details about Uday's childhood, including his upbringing and early years, are not extensively documented, and information about his formative years is relatively limited. 
However, what we do know is that Uday was, even from a very young age, a spoiled, erratic, unlikable and violent-natured child who was prone to sudden and unpredictable fits of outwardly aggressive rage. Even before he reached double digits, there were significant concerns about his mental state. He was a relentless bully who seemed to get a kick out of endlessly beating and tormenting his classmates. His teachers were powerless, they didn't dare to impose any discipline or sanctions against young Uday out of fear of accidentally offending his father. Indeed, upsetting Saddam Hussein in any way almost always resulted in imprisonment, torture or, in some cases, death. Uday knew this only too well and he used it to his advantage at any given opportunity threatening to have his teachers and their entire families tortured and executed should they fail to appease his every whim. And how oh dangerous God, is that in a child? Is... I mean, it's almost laughable because, you know, like, I'm sure we all know of a child that's a bit of a brat and they're like, well, my mum, you know, you do that and I'll tell my mum and she'll yeah. come down to the school. But this actually is a real threat. It's this reason, like, the actually valid threat and terrifying. Can you imagine trying to be his teacher and trying to impose any sort of discipline or... You just couldn't. Oh my God, be he's so that. scary. Absolutely. What an absolute little shit. Totally. Like, oh. Yeah, abs- absolute shit. And it's just so dangerous to not have any discipline as a child because he's never going to learn right from wrong and he absolutely never learnt that lesson. So Uday's behaviour went unrestricted and he was allowed to run wild and do as he pleased. He was a spoilt brat, as you kind of said, Beth, and a little shit. He had no conscience, no sense of empathy, no sense of right or wrong, as I said, and very little interest in his academic development because that's boring to most kids and he didn't want to do it, so he didn't have to. By modern medical standards, he was the textbook definition of a psychopath. Uday's destructive tendencies only intensified as they followed him into adulthood. As a young adult in a prominent political family, Uday enjoyed significant privilege and opportunities not available to most young men in Iraq. He was raised in a strict environment of authority, surrounded by the trappings of wealth and influence, and his father's position as the vice president and later president of Iraq provided Uday with access to a wealth of resources, education and connections. I feel like this is a dangerous person anyway, but with his background and his family, like you just... I think that's it. Yeah, he could have, he could have even in the right upbringing, in the right environment, he might have uh, become really uh, a bit of a psychopath anyway. But yeah, all of this just feeds into it so much more. Yeah, he may still have been a bully, but then potentially his parents would have backed the teachers, for example, or something like that. Um, whereas in this, it's just a, it's like a perfect storm, isn't it? I, I think it is, yeah. Um, and he was very controlling even as a child, so no one was allowed to wear the same clothing as him. When he saw someone wearing something that he had, he reportedly ordered them to never wear the item again. Oh and, my God. I mean, it's ridiculous. He demanded, Absolutely ridiculous. He demanded individuality and proudly displayed his luxurious collection of shoes and accessories and expensive cologne. And that sense of individuality was really, really important to him. Because he's better than everybody else. So he doesn't want to look like any of the scummers and normal people, does he? He wants to be really special and he's so special. I and imagine he, that's how he felt. He wants to reinforce that importance, that cult of importance surrounding him all of the time. And he will do that through how he looks also, yeah. He was particular about his looks. He spent his lavish wealth on everything from facial creams to beard trimmers. 
Uday had a particular interest in the political side of institutional sports, particularly football, but despite his lack of qualifications for the position, his father made him the president of the Iraqi Olympic Committee and also the Iraqi Football Association, so he was president of both. And Saddam wanted to exert absolute control over all sporting in Iraq. And Uday seemed like the perfect man for that job. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I mean, he would want that anyway, but his dad also wants it for his own reasons. So between the pair of them... Total Nepo baby. Uday also established his own newspaper, Babel, and a television station called Al Rashid TV, which he used to promote his father's regime and advance his own personal interests. Uday was fiercely loyal to his father and played a significant role in suppressing dissent and maintaining the regime's control. He helped to establish the Fedayeen Saddam paramilitary group, which acted as a brutal enforcer of the regime's policies. Saddam demanded complete and utter obedience, and the Fedayeen, under the close watch of Uday, was responsible for intimidating, torturing and executing perceived political opponents or anyone else who said or did anything that went against the regime. From an early age, Uday was being groomed and mentored by his father to one day succeed him as the supreme leader of Iraq. And there's so many parallels for me with this uh, and our North Korean episode when we looked at the assassination of Kim. No, what was his name? One of the Young Nam um, brothers. I can't remember, I can't yeah, remember. But I think it was Kim, Kim Yong, Yong Nam. Maybe it was Kim Yong Nam. I can't remember the guy. What's the guy that is oh, the leader of the country now? I can see. Kim Jong Il is the leader, isn't it? Oh, maybe it was Kim Yong Nam then, yeah. They're all called Kim. Let's have a they? quick look. Yeah, so, um, so Kim Yong Nam was the person who was killed and he was the brother of Kim Yong Un. Ah, okay, yeah. Who is the dictator. Yeah, I mean, the point I'm trying to make is it's almost like... I completely like, agree, though. Yeah. Completely agree. It's so S- Saddam similar, Hussein isn't it? Is, is trying to create this political dynasty, which is what the Kims did in North Korea. They kind of came from nothing, had sort of power within military, and then uh, ultimately dictatorship of the whole country and a dynasty. And I think this is the way that it was absolutely going in, in Iraq. Initially, things went well with this kind of mentorship. Uday had a fierce temper and violent tendencies, but Saddam used fear and intimidation to keep him in line. Nobody dared say a word against Saddam Hussein, and even his own family members were no exception to that rule. So there was at least some kind of control of Uday in childhood, this grooming, this mentoring to to, uh, succeed Saddam at some point. Saddam was kind of keeping him in line to a certain extent, but in his own brutal way. However, Uday's psychotic urges only intensified as he got older, and as time progressed, he spiralled down into such an uncontrollable level of depravity, so disturbing, even his own father began to keep his distance, not wanting to be around any of his son's mayhem. I mean, that tells you a lot, yeah. doesn't it, when Saddam Hussein thinks you're not doing a great thing yeah and there was that element of control during his upbringing but I think when adolescence hit yeah Saddam himself was kind of like I can't control this boy I'm kind of done you know we'll see how this turns out as the eldest son of the all-powerful Saddam Hussein and the future ruler of Iraq himself he was untouchable and he knew it this was a recipe for disaster 
The abhorrent and horrific crimes that Uday Hussein perpetrated over the course of his life, as extreme and unbelievable as they may seem, have been verified and well documented by the unfortunate souls who were there and who had witnessed to his madness firsthand. And it's these acts of violence that make him one of the most notorious, deadly psychopaths the world has ever seen. One man whose life was particularly affected by Uday's antics was Latif Yahya, a former army lieutenant from Iraq who gained notoriety for his reluctant association with Uday. Latif was born and raised in Iraq where he received military training and served as a lieutenant in the army. In the late 1980s he was unexpectedly summoned to a meeting with Uday Hussein. Uday demanded that Latif become his fide, a term used for body doubles or lookalikes, and just a job nobody would have wanted. Uday's motive for this was rooted in paranoia, no doubt fuelled by his immense consumption of Colombia's finest, and also a desire for personal security, as he believed having a body double would help protect him from potential assassination attempts. I'm not sure why I said assassination attempts. You but did I'll say leave it really it funny. I did say it funny. <laughs> There's too many S's it was in quite, that. Yeah, it's a weird word to say it anyway. It is. I'm going to yeah. struggle with lots of words. I just can't be fucked to, to retake I mean, them and edit them out in this. I'm not being funny. Of all the words in this that you could get wrong, assassination, yeah, assassination. is probably the one I wasn't thinking you'd get wrong. But Maybe his ass was assassinated. Um, maybe he's just an ass. And maybe he's why. an ass. We can joke about assassination attempts on him because he was an absolute twat, obviously. Yeah. So the little the, shit. We'll, little we'll shit, laugh about a him. A big shit. He became a big shit. Latif was told in no uncertain terms that if he said no, he and his entire family would basically be imprisoned indefinitely and subjected to torture. So it was, you know, fait accompli. And with no say in the matter, Latif was thrust into the role of Uday's body double, a position that would drastically alter the course of his life. Under Uday's watchful gaze, Latif underwent an intensive process of physical transformation, including plastic surgery and dental alterations to make him resemble Uday as closely as possible. Oh this my is, god, I assume he just looked really, really similar, and that's why he told him he had to do it. He did a bit, I just but... assumed that they were identical. Oh my god, no. that's awful. It's terrible, and you can imagine what the kind of plastic surgeons and dentist people were like or dentists in the kind of 80s uh in iraq it, it, i don't think it would have been uh probably no anesthetic kind of vibe um and uday had this sort of you know he was quite a strapping guy he was over six foot sort of tall dark and not handsome um he looked a bit sort of um a bit goofy is probably the word I would use. Nothing wrong with that at all. But, you know, that they're, they're going to turn Latif into this sort of goofy guy to resemble Uday as much as possible. Um, but this is the stuff like from Mission Impossible, isn't it? You'd think this wouldn't be real, but this absolutely happened. Latif did undergo extensive plastic surgery and dental alterations to make him look like Uday. As impossibly sounding as that is, it did happen. I'm just going to quickly throw out there that one of my favourite films ever is the film Face Off, and it's giving me kind of Face Off vibes here. Yeah. So, yeah. It's just, this is just bizarre. It's really bizarre. What else are we going to expect from Saddam Hussein's son? Exactly. And it does get more depraved and it gets worse. 
As Uday's double, Latif was required to mimic Uday's mannerisms, speech patterns and behaviour, effectively becoming a living replica of the dictator's son. And lots of people said that Uday was quite camp, not necessarily a word I would want to use, but that's how people have referred to him historically. So he did have some camp mannerisms and Latif would have to kind of replicate that, which I find quite funny, to be honest, um, that he would have to replicate, you know, every aspect of, of this man's uh, behaviour, including his mannerisms, but then also physically as well. So Latif accompanied Uday to various public appearances, official functions and even dangerous encounters where his life was constantly at risk. And Latif was essentially a pawn in Uday's elaborate game of deception. He was used to confuse potential enemies and protect Uday from harm. For Latif, the stakes were unimaginably high. If anything were to ever happen to Uday, he'd be considered a failure or even a collaborator, and he would have been put to death along with his entire family. And again, that's very similar punishment that we hear about in North Korea, where the crimes of one uh, will have ramifications on, on their entire family. Throughout his time as Uday's double, Latif witnessed firsthand the excessive violence and brutality of Uday's lifestyle. He observed the unimaginable indulgences, the sadistic acts committed against innocent people and the sheer disregard for human life that permeated Uday's world. These experiences left an indelible mark on Latif's psyche as he struggled to reconcile the atrocities he witnessed with his own moral compass. Uday's cruelty was inflicted upon the lives of literally everyone he had dealings with, beginning with his tenure as president of the Iraqi Olympic Committee and the Iraqi Football Association. Uday saw the Iraqi National Sports Institution as an extension of his power, and he demanded nothing less than absolute perfection from his athletes, especially his footballers. Failure to win games often resulted in prison terms. Lack of improvement would see them cruelly tortured. Former Iraqi footballers turned defectors went on to say that Uday never really understood or showed much interest in the game itself, but was desperate enough for a win that he would phone up the dressing room during half-time to threaten to cut off players' legs and throw them to ravenous dogs, and he meant it. Oh my god, like, you're doing the best you can already. You don't go out there as a football player and not try and win. Yeah, You'd hope then that the... Like the coaches would then go across to the other dressing room and be like, look, guys, you need to throw this game. But they're, but they're not going to do that. Oh. Yeah, it's, it is truly shocking. And it does sound like something out of a film, but this happened and worse happened. As football overseer, Uday kept a private torture scorecard with written instructions on how many times each player should be beaten on the soles of his feet after a particularly poor showing. So he really reveled in this. One Iraqi defector reported that imprisoned football players were forced to kick a concrete football as hard as they could after failing to reach the 1994 FIFA World Cup finals, causing them all to suffer broken toes and permanent nerve damage, which essentially put pay to their athletic careers. That was just one form of punishment. The Iraqi national football team were later seen with their heads and beards shaved and that's an enormous humiliation in Iraqi Islamic culture and that was after failing to achieve a good result in a regional tournament so that was a punishment for them and that was one of of course the less severe punishments they endured but in in their culture that was you know incredibly humiliating and embarrassing. Another defector claimed that after being brutally tortured, athletes were dragged through a gravel pit and then immersed in a sewage tank to induce infection in their wounds. 
isn't that just shocking? Oh, so, my God. you know, they're, they're dragged through. They've got all of these cuts and grazes across their entire bodies and then dumped in a sewage tank, raw sewage permeating into their wounds and infecting them. Uh, I mean, people would have died as a result of those infections. After Iraq lost 4 1 to Japan in the quarterfinals of the 2000 AFC Asian Cup in Lebanon, Goalkeeper Hashim Kamis, defender Abdul Jabbar Hashim, and centre forward Katan Katia were found guilty of loss, a crime that Uday randomly made up on the spot to suit his purpose, and the men were flogged to within an inch of their lives for three long days by Uday's security team. Ahmed Hassan, a former Iraqi footballer who played under the iron rule of Uday, said, Playing under Uday's regime was a nightmare. Failure to meet his expectations resulted in severe punishment. We lived in constant fear, knowing that any misstep could lead to unimaginable consequences. And I think I do remember at the time, so in the early noughties, so perhaps at this AFC Asian Cup in Lebanon in the quarterfinals that Iraqi lost, I do remember, it might have been that, uh, pictures in the paper and, and people talking about the game, having seen it, and the defeat in the players' faces after they'd lost that game and the fear, you know, they could really see the fear. It wasn't just humiliation that they have lost the game, it was what is going to happen to us now. Outside of football, Uday was also a dangerous paedophile who had an insatiable sexual appetite and was especially fond of young virginal schoolgirls. He's gone all Ghislaine Maxwell on, on our shit. And he would do exactly as Ghislaine would do. He would often go out for car rides with his bodyguards looking for victims, some of whom were as young as 12 or 13. There was no need for romance or sweet talk in Uday's world. When he saw an innocent young girl that he liked the look of, he'd order his men to take her by force and bring her back to his home in order for him to rape her. The ones who submitted to his evil urges without protest would often get to leave and go home again when he was done with them. However, it wasn't uncommon for girls to end up dead if they dared to put up a struggle and fight for their honour. Their battered dead bodies later were discarded like trash by the side of the road. That was almost like a common sight in, in parts of Iraq to see that women women had just been discarded by the side of the road having been raped by Uday and probably his security team as well. According to one especially infamous story of Uday's antics, he once attended a wedding that he wasn't invited to, and he did this kind of thing quite a lot, weddings, parties, etc. He took a strong liking to the bride on this occasion, so he ordered his men to bring her up to his hotel room. There, he savagely beat her to a pulp and violently raped her for several hours. When he finally allowed the bride to leave, the deeply humiliated, shamed and violated young woman staggered up to the roof of the building and jumped off, killing herself. It's just beyond comprehension at this point. As the tragic woman's distraught family gathered around her body and mourned her loss, Uday could be heard laughing loudly from his hotel window. None of this should be shocking me. Like, I should be ready for this by now. But every single thing that happens, I'm just like, I can't believe that this is now happening and that it could possibly get any worse. It's that there's just no motive. It's a sense of entitlement and just acting with complete impunity. It's just so dangerous and it's created a, a genuine monster. So, as I said, Uday used to attend all sorts of parties and crash weddings, and this, what we just mentioned, wasn't an isolated incident. 
So yeah, he would crash weddings, terrorise the guests and forever ruin the lives of the bride and groom. And I guess maybe that was out of some kind of jealousy on his part, potentially. To him, Yeah, because he's never going to find love. Yeah, I think so. To him, this was a hobby, a way to entertain himself when he was bored. Saddam Hussein's personal butler recounted how he was once with Uday when they crashed a wedding at Baghdad's hunting club in the late 90s without an invitation. Uday left the hall laughing like a maniac as he dragged the terrified bride by her hair. His bodyguards blocked the doors to prevent anyone from leaving and threatened to shoot anyone who dared intervene in Uday's antics. To free himself from the shame and humiliation, the groom pulled out his gun and killed himself right there. The butler stated this was literally a weekly routine for Uday. Uday would also visit public places such as markets and music events to seek out new victims. Once again, he took what he wanted with zero regard to anything or for anyone. If his female target was with a husband, it wasn't uncommon for Uday to have him savagely beaten or even killed in front of everyone. And the point was to cause the maximum amount of physical and emotional stress to his female victims, which he greatly enjoyed. Indeed, for Uday, consensual sex was just mundane and unsatisfying, and he could only derive sexual pleasure if his victims were powerless and struck dumb with fear. A former maid who worked with Uday later reflected on a time when he had a young bride kidnapped by his bodyguards when he saw her en route to her post-wedding celebrations. The 18-year-old was forcefully brought to one of his guard houses. A maid witnessed Uday's bodyguard rip the woman's dress off and lock her up. After Uday arrived, the woman's cries reportedly became screams. The maid was later summoned to clean up the room. A bodyguard threatened her to silence, saying, don't say anything about what you see or you and your family will be finished. And I, I dread to think the state of that room by the time Uday had finished with her. I don't know whether she would have been dead, um, but it's likely that he would have forced her to take drugs. Later, when his house was raided, they found heroin, for example. They found HIV testing kits. Uh, he would force women to undergo um, STI screening before he raped them. Uh, it was so premeditated. In one such well-documented case, Uday picked out a teen girl that he liked the look of. He then had his bodyguards abduct her, she was 14 years old, only to then discover that she was the daughter of a former provincial governor, so a very important man within the Iraqi government. After raping her for three long and painful days, Uday reportedly dropped her off back at home in a new outfit and with an apology note. The girl's parents confirmed the assault with a doctor, and the ex-governor demanded to see Saddam about it and went on public tirades about what Uday had done to his girl. Wow, what a brave dad. Really brave. And Saddam did nothing, opting to stay out of it altogether, such was his policy at the time. But the governor was relentless in his quest for justice and continued to vocally appeal to Saddam to get a leash on his evil son. And this kind of back and forth went on for months until Uday threatened to have the man killed, but ultimately decided on a much crueler and more spiteful act of revenge. Uday instructed the former governor to bring both of his daughters, then aged 14 and 12, to him, ominously saying, your daughters will be my girlfriends or I'll wipe you off the face of the earth. At the next party, the humiliated man handed both of his girls over to Uday. Can you believe oh, that? Bless. Oh, that's that horrible. For a, for a father to have to hand over his daughters 
to this monster. One daughter, the 14-year-old who had already been subjected to a three-day ordeal at his hands, he took that daughter to a doctor. Had that assault confirmed, she would have been physically in pain and you know, just there would have been lots of physical repercussions as a result of that three-day assault and rape. And he was now handing that girl and his even younger daughter back to that man. I just, you know, just... uh, You don't even want to say the word man, do you? You just want to say, like, that animal, but it's not even animal. Like, he's He's just pure evil. He's a monster. Yeah. Uday's body double, Latif, later said, I saw many rapes. He raped and killed women and then killed their parents and husbands if they complained. I witnessed many murders. Uday had raped one of the Baghdad beauty queens and her father complained to Saddam. He ordered me to kill him. I refused and instead cut my wrists. That's how desperate this man was. You know, he's massive cry for help or a suicide attempt, actually, to get out of having to mop up this monster's shit basically yeah interestingly Uday would take two days a week off without any of his madness or touching a woman at all and he called this his fasting and it was done as an act of penance to God however Uday's insatiable thirst for evil was far more powerful than his reverence for Allah and his bouts of sanity never lasted long Uday once threw a lavish party to one of the high-ranking members of the Iraqi military There, Uday got wildly intoxicated on whiskey and cocaine, and in a drug-fuelled rage, he savagely battered an army officer into unconsciousness when the man refused to allow Uday to dance with his wife. The man later died from his injuries. In a separate incident, Uday personally shot and killed an army officer who did not salute him correctly. Torture was another of Uday's preferred pastimes. He would always choose the most barbarous torture methods to interrogate or punish those who displeased him or had fallen foul of the Hussein regime. Pulling fingernails, extracting teeth, breaking bones, flogging and electrocution were common, but Uday had a special kind of love for the Iron Maiden method. The Iron Maiden is a despicable torture device that consists of a solid iron cabinet with a hinged front and razor-sharp spike-covered interior, sufficiently tall enough to enclose a human being. So you've got to picture it, if you can't get it in your head, it's, it's like a big chest and it's kind of upright and the insides of it have massive metal spikes, and a man is going to have to stand in that and have it closed on him. So you might think those spikes are going to penetrate him and kill him instantly. That's not what this is about at all. It's worse than that, really. So Uday's victims would be forced to stand upright in this chamber, for want of a better word, for days on end with no food or water. So, of course, it's impossible to sit down or lie down or even lean against the side because that would basically mean that those spikes would then go through you and it was also you know filled with like rusty razors and stuff and it would be a slow and horrific oh, way it's to just die. horrendous yeah because you know no Absolutely food no horrific. water and you know after a few days it was so impossible. you're gonna start slumping yeah it's it was impossible to stand up so mm-hmm. you know your body would give way but your mind would still be relatively active and know what's about to happen so you would die but mm-hmm. after three and you can imagine days like, or more the exhaustion you'd start to fall asleep but then you'd slump and then you'd wake up from the pain or so like she wouldn't sleep either so you must go completely mad in those last think, few hours yeah. and, and and also the claustrophobia days. of it and and maybe some kind of false false hope that actually 
all that he needs to do is unlock this and open the door and I'm out and I've had the torture, okay, I've, I've taken it, I'm sorry, I've learnt my lesson, uh, but but no, it, it, that wasn't coming, relief wasn't going to come, only in the form of death, a painful, slow death. Mm. When Uday discovered the internet, he began collecting different methods of punishment. His favourite was the foot whipper, otherwise known as the phalanger. An article in Time magazine describes this medieval era phalanga or phalaqua, I can't remember quite what it's called, as a rod with clamps that go around the ankle so that the offender, uh, so that their feet are basically in the air and can be hit, um, like the bare soles can be hit with a stick. So it's almost like um, clogs almost, but hollow, so that the soles of the feet are um, sort of like bared and, and yeah, can be can be whipped, basically. According to top officials in the Hussein administration, Uday often issued beatings for simple mistakes or errors. One official recalled Uday ordering him to carry a personal phalanqua as a symbol of the constant turmoil Uday felt the employee deserved. Reportedly, Uday inflicted the phalanqua on his butler for using the wrong kitchenware, for example. So, you know, real small misdemeanours would result in in them having to to wear that humiliating device and then have the soles of their feet whipped with a stick repeatedly. And yeah, this guy oh, having it's making to, my feet it's horrible and like in pain just to think about. It's just awful. And this guy having to carry that around with him. And to where that was, you know, you're my bitch, basically, and I, I can have you at any moment. It's impossible to say exactly how many people Uday murdered, raped or tortured, but we can safely say that even in the best case scenario, it was in the high hundreds, if not thousands. Uday's psychotic behaviour went largely unchecked for years. Indeed, those around him were understandably far too frightened of him to intervene in his perverse, despicable antics. However, behind the scenes, his actions and arrogance were incurring far-reaching, long-term consequences now. Karma was coming for him. Although his status as Saddam Hussein's eldest son made him the obvious prospective successor to one day rule over Iraq, Uday soon fell severely out of favour with his father, when one particularly savage incident landed right on Saddam's lap. At a party in honour of Suzanne Mubarak, wife of Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak, Uday brutally murdered his father's best friend and most trusted adviser, Kamal Hanna Gego. Before an assemblage of horrified guests, a heavily intoxicated Uday bludgeoned Gego with a pistol before mercilessly stabbing him to death with an electric carving knife. Which oh was probably switched on. And this at is the his time. dad's best mate. This was as his well. dad's, what? yeah. Well, best friend, trusted advisor, someone that that Saddam would have known for a long time. And I think the issue here is that you know, although there's been an element of political unrest and disruption in Egypt, you know, really, it's it's quite a, a normal sort of country, isn't it? And we've got, you know, this is a party to honor to, to honor the wife of the president of Egypt. So they would have been quite normal people, and they were there. And they witness this, and that you know that is a step too far as far as Saddam is concerned. And so the, the reason this happened is that Gego, so Saddam's trusted advisor and best friend, had recently introduced Saddam to a younger woman. Her name was Samira Shabanda, and she later became Saddam's second wife. And Uday considered his father's relationship with Shabanda as an insult to his mother. And he furthermore feared losing his succession to Gego, whose loyalty and fidelity to Saddam Hussein was solid and unwavering. And that could have happened. Saddam could have absolutely bypassed the traditional um, 
line of succession and, and gone outside of that to a high-ranking military personnel, a trusted advisor. I just think as well, like obviously we're not talking about someone who is mentally well and is at mm. all normal, but the fact that he's like, oh, my dad's got a second wife, that's not very nice to my mum. Yeah. You rape women on their wedding days. You rape young girls. You murder and torture people. And you're bothered about a woman becoming his second wife when his wife probably was well aware of that. And I'm probably thinking, thank like, fuck it for that. Yeah, I get a little bit of a break every once in a while from Saddam Hussein. I don't know, like, it's just the second part, I think, yeah, losing his succession. I think that's probably more his his things. But the fact that he even was worried about his mum's upsetting thing about having a new wife in their house, I just, oh, my God. No, you don't get to care about someone else's second wife. It's it's a ridiculous level of hypocrisy, and I, I, I there's there's nothing really. That's the word. I forgot the word. Yeah, hypocrisy, hypocrisy completely. There's nothing really to go on in terms of, as I said, Uday's early childhood, and his, in particular, his relationship with his mother, because I think that would be very interesting to, to to know what that relationship was like and how his mother treated him, because I suspect that he was possibly spoilt by her too, or maybe she was in fear of him I don't know but I get the impression that he almost sort of deified his own mother and that's where this hypocrisy comes from that you know she's not like other women she is godlike to me and I need to protect her whereas other women are meaningless to me and dispensable Mm. so this horrifying event which is like if people have ever seen I think it was dynasty where there was some sort of like I don't know diplomatic banquet being held and half the fucking guests were slaughtered it sounds like that and kind game of, thing. of thrones there's been a couple thrones, of different yeah. massive yeah the red wedding yeah it depends how old you are um whether it's dynasty or yeah. game of thrones but <laughs> dynasty yeah, or game of thrones <laughs> we've got definite red wedding vibes here and um and yeah as i said you know that w- it was really important that, that it was um uh bared witness t- to the you know political people in egypt which was a, a more normal country so this horrifying event came just weeks after Uday shot his own uncle in the leg after a petty falling out. And Saddam was devastated and enraged when he learned that his eldest son had publicly slaughtered his closest friend. And this really was the final straw. And I think Saddam Hussein, as much as he was a psychopath himself, was genuinely really upset that his best fucking friend had been murdered. He was gutted about that. Saddam had previously tried to quell his eldest son's uncontrollable behaviour by arranging two wives for him. However, both of his marriages ended in further embarrassment when Uday raped and battered them both half to death within weeks of the wedding. I mean, of course oh he God. did that because he doesn't know he any different. To, yeah. But... but yeah, even his own wives weren't safe. Saddam had finally had enough of his eldest son's insanity. The irony of this was palpable, of course. Saddam Hussein, a vicious, ruthless, bloodthirsty tyrant in his own right, couldn't stomach the idea of his beloved country being handed over to his psychopathic eldest son. I mean, it's like, it really is a pot, kettle and black, but it really is saying something when Saddam Hussein is kind of saying, you need to keep yourself in check a bit, son. It really is. So um, Saddam basically orchestrated a deeply humiliating reallocation of power He handed his future succession rights over to his second-born son and Uday's younger brother, Kwasi Hussein. He then had Uday sent over to Switzerland to start a new life there. 
Uday lived in Switzerland for less than six months before he was deported and permanently banned for violent behaviour, and he then returned to Iraq as a disgraced political outcast. I think he spent some time in London at one point as well, and was having money wired from the Iraqi embassy in London to the tune of like £170 million in about 14 months he managed to get through um, to fund his lifestyle there. So, you know, yeah, party boy very much, but with that horrifically ruthless streak wherever he was, he couldn't have a fresh start. Terrifying, yeah, absolutely. And of course Switzerland would have said, we can't have a bar of this, get him yeah, the fuck out of our country. You can country. go home. Yeah. Yeah, go back to daddy because we're not dealing with this. So Quasi Hussein was not a noble or decent man by any standards. He was loyal to the regime and shared a lot of his father's tyrannical ideals and authoritarian approaches to ruling over the masses. However, compared to his older brother, he might as well have been Jesus. If Saddam did nothing else of value with his life, he certainly made the right call here. Had Uday been allowed to succeed his father as the ruler of Iraq, there's no telling what kind of mayhem, misery and death would have further befallen its people. There is no doubt whatsoever that Uday would have dragged every living being in Iraq, kicking and screaming down towards an unbearable life of living hell. Countless thousands of lives were saved when Saddam put his foot down and said, no more. And... um. I think it would have gone on, it really would have gone on to become a very much North Korea and yeah, they would have been a very dangerous country. Had the war not happened in 2003, which we'll go on to, t- we, we will of course touch on that, um, but had that not happened and for some reason Uday had uh, superseded Saddam or overthrown him or pulled off some kind of coup before that and ruled that country that that would have been a very threatening country that would have probably built a armory of nuclear weapons it wasn't just saddam who was sick of uday however after years of killing torturing and raping with absolute impunity the entire population of iraq despised him i i, I always think of princess margaret in, in this kind of uh, because she was despised by pretty much the entire country. So think Princess Margaret's uh, the Iraqi equivalent Aww, of that. That makes me really sad. Oh, she was horrible though, wasn't she? Um, so the countless <laughs> hundreds of relatives of Uday's innocent victims wanted revenge almost as much as they simply just wanted to put a stop to his madness once and for all. And they would get revenge. Mercifully, for Latif, um, that's Uday's body double, his tenure as Uday's body double came to an end just in the nick of time. Faced with the realisation that his life was in constant danger and feeling an increasing sense of moral conflict, to say the least, he made a daring escape in 1991 during the chaos and confusion of the Gulf War. Latif sought asylum in Europe, where he shared his story with the entire world, shedding light on the dark underbelly of Saddam Hussein's regime and Uday's reign of terror. Latif's escape is without doubt the only reason he's still alive today. On December the 12th in 1996, as Uday Hussein and his remaining bodyguards were leaving a party in Baghdad in his motorcade, gunfire suddenly erupted, with multiple assailants opening fire on his vehicle. The attackers, believed to be members of the Iraqi opposition group, 
as well as civilian relatives of Uday's victims, see, I told you they'd get revenge, sought to kill Uday and strike a blow against the Hussein regime. Hussein regime. Several bodyguards were killed and Uday was hit by multiple bullets himself, which caused extensive damage. So I think two of them hit him in the groin, which ultimately rendered him impotent, which was a fucking blessed Good. relief at this point, because he did survive this. Hope his willy really hurt as I, well. I think his willy was pretty much fucking blasted off, Beth and as well as his balls. The attack left him partially paralysed with lasting physical and neurological effects. His injuries required extensive medical treatment and he underwent numerous surgeries and rehabilitation efforts in order to recover as much fun- function as possible. So he was he was really wounded by this, but he did receive brilliant care and he wasn't um, in a vegetative state or anything like that. He was quite kind of um, compass mentis, just quite probably, I would say, more physically impaired and a bit neurologically impaired. Good, because I would hate for him to just have had like a quick bullet to the head death. Yeah, like, I'm glad absolutely. That he, he suffered. Not many people, um, but quite often on this show, we do say, don't we? There's not many people you'd wish um, a horrible death to, but with him, I'm glad he's he's really suffering yeah same yeah this was this would have been torturous and he would have had a taste of his own medicine and you would think an opportunity to reflect but alas that wasn't really the case um so this event was a major turning point in his life it left him deeply traumatized he did stop attending public events and he did become withdrawn he became a bit of a recluse and heavily dependent on drugs and alcohol but it didn't make him any less dangerous he kind of orchestrated um terror from within his own kind of compound do you know what i mean he was pretty much confined to his own home taking cocaine heroin he wasn't going out on the streets no. and doing stuff but he was still dangerous yeah absolutely following the attack the regime launched a massive crackdown on opposition groups tightening security measures and intensifying efforts to suppress rising dissent the incident further fueled the cycle of violence and repression that characterised Saddam Hussein's regime, exacerbating tensions within the country. Uday focused his attention on the Hussein regime and began working alongside his father to advance the family's political aims. So he was kind of, as I said, he was still orchestrating stuff um, from his home. Uday was a key player in many of Saddam's war crimes and it's said that he was trying to curry favour with Saddam in the hope of regaining his succession rights back from his younger brother Kwasi. But that was never going to happen because he was now physically and mentally impaired to, to carry out that role, but probably not willing to accept that. No, he'd never even think that that was possible would he he'd think that he would get it no matter what i i think he was probably so physically and mentally impaired that he didn't he couldn't really think rationally so he probably thought he could run that country uh, he probably didn't quite understand the reality of um his physical limitations and neurological limitations at this point so none of this mattered anyway whether you know he thought he was going to succeed his brother or not um, because as fate would soon decree neither Uday or Kwasi would ever get to rule over Iraq. By now the year was 2003 and Saddam Hussein was being accused of illegally possessing weapons of mass destruction. The allied governments in the west demanded that Saddam Hussein surrender his weapons immediately or face swift military intervention. I'm not going to get all political on your ass here but I would just maybe refer you back to our David Kelly episode which we did very early on um probably you know uh technically and from a production kind of uh 
standpoint not not the best episode i don't know but it was interesting wasn't it because we looked at david kelly who was a weapons inspector and he said i think that he had evidence that there weren't weapons of mass destruction in iraq and he'd presented that to the government and then all of a sudden he finds himself dead um so yeah do potentially yeah season one episode six please do head back and re-listen to that one we um we we would definitely recommend that you have a re-listen to that that's um it was such a fascinating case. So, as I said, the government in the West demanded that Saddam Hussein surrender the so-called weapons of mass destruction. Saddam refused on the basis that he didn't actually have any, but simultaneously refused to allow UN weapons inspectors to enter his military facilities to check for themselves. And I know I'm going to go back to it, but I think David Kelly, he was kind of flying back and forth to Iraq a lot, Um in the run-up to 2003 wasn't he he was there all the time in Iraq he'd done you know dozens of trips and he had kind of been in these sort of vicinities and there were no weapons according to him I think if memory serves anyway we'll move on um So despite the palpable lack of evidence that Saddam's regime was concealing weapons of mass destruction, the US and British governments made the outrageously controversial decision to invade Iraq regardless. You can probably tell my thoughts on this. On March 20th and 2003, the invasion began with a massive airstrike campaign against key military and government targets. This was followed by a ground invasion involving coalition forces from various countries. The initial phase of the invasion was swift. Baghdad fell on April the 9th. That's just like two weeks after the invasion commenced. And Saddam Hussein's entire regime was toppled for good. And we'll all probably remember those images of the statue being pulled down. Um, you know, that really was a, a seminal moment. And it was like, wow, this, you know, this has fallen physically and metaphorically now. This regime is gone. The Hussein family managed to evade capture for a few more months, but it was only a matter of time, of course. Saddam and his family, now being actively hunted by the Allied troops and Iraqi rebels as war criminals, were forced to go their separate ways and to go into hiding. Intelligence services in both the US and the UK worked together to successfully track down, kill and arrest several key players from Saddam's regime, with brothers Uday and Kwasi being considered high-value targets along with their father Saddam. Then on July the 22nd in 2003, Uday's wild ride came to a permanent end. So this is just three or four months after that invasion commenced. I love to think that he was really scared the whole time. Um, I imagine he was probably quite, um, I I can't think of the right word, but like he wouldn't have been scared. He'd have been all like cocky about it and like, no, we won't get caught. But actually, a lot of me hopes that he did live in a lot of fear and terror because of what he put other people through I, I really think he would in those three or four months he would not have been living in luxury he was physically and neurologically impaired he wouldn't have had round-the-clock care available to him in the same way that he would have before the regime fell he was also heavily addicted to drugs particularly cocaine and heroin and that was probably more difficult to get hold of once the regime was toppled or the invasion commenced in March so he'd have possibly been going through immense withdrawal which would have been terrible and he probably was using heroin in particular to medicate the pain the physical pain um so he would have been in lots more pain so yeah it it would have been a, a really terrible four months for him absolutely would have been i'm sure which is a good thing Uday and his brother Kwasi had stuck together, so the family did kind of split up a lot, but they'd stuck together and they'd tried to flee Iraq by crossing the border into Syria, but they'd been refused entry. 
Instead, they found a place to hide in northern Iraq, where they believed the military wouldn't bother looking for them. Not long after, the US military were approached by one of Saddam's personal aides who had accompanied the brothers to their hideout. So this aide, and I kind of love this, he offered to betray the brothers in exchange for $30 million, as well as safe passage out of Iraq (laughs) and permanent residence in the US, as well as... it Ooh. does annoy me because I'm sure this aide wouldn't have had oh, yeah, he, no he would have murdered guilt on people. him whatsoever. It's frustrating. But yeah, shop them. Get Tell whoever you want to tell. Yeah, and this, so, you know, the, the US uh, agreed to these terms. So $30 million um, passage out of Iraq, probably on, you know, a lavish private jet or a military craft. Um, then permanent residency in the US, probably protection as well over there um immunity from prosecution and some kind of form of diplomatic status as well and america said yeah okay we'll do it and they you know none of this is 100% verified but an article i read on this said that you know we don't know for sure but yeah they probably did agree to that and it probably did happen and that guy's probably living in america in uh, you know, probably a nice part of America in the sunshine in a mansion, uh, living the life of Riley, I would have thought. So acting upon fresh intel pertaining to Uday and Quasi's whereabouts, US Special Forces conducted a daring raid on a heavily guarded residence in the northern city of Mosul in Iraq, where Uday Hussein and his younger brother Quasi Hussein were believed to be hiding. The operation aimed to capture or neutralise the Hussein brothers. The raid involved a large contingent of US troops, including members of the 101st Airborne Division, supported by helicopters and armoured vehicles. And the intel proved to be accurate. So this guy that had kind of sold them out for $30 million and all that other shit wasn't having them on. He was absolutely right. Uh, Before the military could even move into the house, though, the troops were met with a barrage of gunfire. The forces tactically surrounded the house and engaged in a fire gun battle with the occupants and the details of the firefight and the events leading to the deaths of Uday and Quasi were obtained from the accounts of the US military and eyewitnesses. So the US military forces attempted to enter the building, encountering heavy resistance from the occupants. The Hussein brothers and several bodyguards were reportedly armed and fiercely fought back. They had no intention of surrendering or going quietly. They kind of had nothing to lose at this point. So it was all out kind of, you know, firefighting, an absolute gun battle um, that, that they were presented with. And this battle lasted for several hours with intense exchanges of gunfire and the use of heavy weaponry. US troops employed various tactics, including the use of armoured vehicles and grenades to suppress the resistance. I mean, can you imagine what this would have looked like? There was this kind of, you know, this sort of compound, there's Uday and Quasi's bodyguards there, they're there, and it's basically like a war restricted to within a couple of hundred square metre location, but grenades going off, all sorts Horrific, of shit Horrific, isn't down. it? Yeah. Yeah. During the firefight, US forces succeeded in neutralising a significant number of bodyguards that had been there to protect Uday and Quasi, and reports indicate that some of the bodyguards detonated explosives to repel the advancing US troops. However, this tactic was woefully ineffective and only served to put them at a further disadvantage as they were then blinded by the dust and smoke from their own grenades and stuff. True to his psychopathic and dangerous nature, Uday fought fearlessly and furiously. However, his recklessness in battle was to be his undoing. In his eagerness to kill as many American soldiers as possible, he inadvertently exposed his position to a US sniper. 
Uday Hussein, the man who spent his life inflicting terror, torture, rape, misery and death on the people of Iraq and was considered by many to be Satan himself, was killed instantly by a single gunshot wound to the head. It was a fittingly violent end to his equally violent existence. Quasi died just moments later a few feet away in a separate room from Uday. US forces engaged him in a gun battle and he was eventually killed in an exchange of fire. After this operation by the US military, the bodies of Uday and Quasi Hussein were displayed to confirm their identities. You can see pictures of those bodies online quite easily. They've been published in mainstream media if you want to see it. And DNA tests were also conducted to provide conclusive evidence um, of their identities. Saddam Hussein was then captured some months later by coalition forces on December the 13th in 2003 near his hometown of Tikrit in Iraq and we've probably all seen that footage of him being kind of hauled out of a, I'll come on to, I can't remember what they called it but I'll come on to describe where he was hiding out. So the operation known as Operation Red Dawn involved a joint effort by US Special Forces and elements of the 1st Brigade Combat Team 4th Infantry Division. Intelligence reports and tips from informants provided leads on Saddam Hussein's whereabouts and based on this information the US forces conducted a targeted raid on a farmhouse near the village of Ad-Dor about 10 kilometres south of Tikrit and the operation took place in the early hours of the morning. During the raid US forces surrounded the farmhouse and called for Saddam Hussein to surrender. After a brief standoff, they discovered him hidden underground in a compartment known as a spider hole. That's what it was called. Yeah, where, that was the weird word. Yeah, yeah they kind of literally hole. literally went down there and dragged him out. And I think because it was at night or in the early hours of the morning, it, you know, there's, there's sort of artificial lights on him and night vision. Uh, you know, we see some of that footage, I think, through night vision goggle type stuff. Um, but yeah, really interesting to actually see that. It was really interesting for us across the world to actually see that. You hear about these things happening, you don't actually often get to actually see it. And this was a guy who was, you know, vilified across the entire world. And we all reveled in seeing him get his comeuppance and being dragged out of this hole in the ground like a, a rabid dog. So Saddam Hussein was taken into custody without any casualties, so he wasn't killed at the scene or anything. And and yeah, just like that, the Hussein regime was finished forever now. So following his capture, he was detained by US Special Forces in Iraq and then subsequently handed over to the Iraqi authorities that the US helped to establish in that country. He faced a trial uh, for crimes against humanity, including charges related to the killing of thousands of Iraqis and Kuwaitis during his regime. And he was then found guilty and executed by hanging on December the 30th in 2006. And I don't remember the um, the photos of Uday and Kwasi being released, but I remember that you could quite easily find the video of him being executed. And I, I guess because it was not like the dawn of the internet obviously we'd had the internet for a while but it was like social media was really becoming more prevalent and people would share more across the internet and I've yeah I remember I didn't remember that they their photos were ever shared of their dead bodies but I remember this Mm. I think the photos that were shared of Quasi and Uday were official photos probably taken by the U.S government oh okay wow to prove they are definitely dead and then they were they i mean i looked at an article in the mirror which is a massive national newspaper in the uk uh in england and i looked at that and and that had published photos of them 
But yeah, the footage footage was filmed of Saddam's execution, probably on a mobile phone. So you're right, Beth, and it was really this kind of right on that tipping point where camera phones and phones where you could actually do short videos were in existence and somebody had in in that congregation of people that watched Saddam being hung or hanged did film it. Um, So today, Iraq is still in a state of recovery from the damaging effects of the Hussein dynasty. Efforts have been made to rebuild infrastructure and restore basic services in war-affected areas, and significant investments have been made in rebuilding cities, including the reconstruction of damaged infrastructure, hospitals, schools and public facilities. And the people of Iraq, of course, they have a long road still ahead of them, but it's clear that a brighter, more peaceful future is now within grasp for them which is the happy ending that we can finish on with all of this. And I genuinely hope that one day we will be able to to travel to Iraq and experience the culture there and the delights on offer, not least the amazing weather that, that they get. So maybe we will get to bask on the banks of their beautiful rivers um, in in years to come. Who knows? There we go. I mean, I didn't think you'd be able to end this on a good note, but well done, you have. Okay, so we'll end it there. Thank you for listening. We'll see you soon. Bye. So thank you so much for listening, guys. Thank you for joining us for this week. And um, as I said, we'll be back next week with another pre-recorded episode. And then Mark is going to join us. He'll be back again properly. 23rd of August, we will then have our short break and we'll be back with season 10 and some exciting things um, on the 13th of September. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. Bye.